Welcome to the Elam Bush Story Hour. Um, are you sitting comfortably? Well, then I shall begin. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from um, Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows. And it says this. What are you looking at? said Rat presently, when the edge of their hunger was somewhat dulled and the mole's eyes were beginning to wander off the tablecloth a little. I am looking, said the mole, at a streak of bubbles that I can see travelling along the surface of the water. That is a funny, that is a thing that strikes me as funny. Bubbles, aho, said the rat, and cheer up cheerfully in an inviting sort of way. A broad, glistening muzzle showed itself above the edge of the bank, and the otter hauled himself out and shook the water from his coat. Greedy beggars, he observed, making for the hamper. Why didn't you invite me, Ratty? This was an impromptu affair, explained the rat. By the way, this is my friend, Mr Mole. Proud, I'm sure, said the otter, and the two animals were friends forthwith. Such rumpus everywhere, continued the otter. All the world seems out on the river today. I came up this backwater to try and get a moment's peace, and then I stumbled upon you fellows. At least, I beg your pardon, I didn't mean that exactly, you know. There was a rustle behind them, proceeding from a hedge, wherein last year's leaves still clung thick, and a stripy head with high shoulders behind it peered forth on them. Come on, badger, shouted the rat. The badger trotted forward a pace or two, then grunted, Hmm, company, and he turned his back and disappeared from view. That's just the sort of fellow he is, observed the disappointed rat. Simply hates society. Now, we shan't see any more of him today. Well, tell us who was out on the river. Toad's out, for one, replied the otter, in his brand new wager boat. Uh, wager boats are like uh, really fast sculling boats. New togs, new everything. The two animals looked at each other and laughed. Once it was nothing but sailing, said the rat. Then... He tired of that and took to punting. Nothing would please him but to punt all day and every day and a nice mess he made of it. Last year it was houseboating and we all had to go and stay with him in his houseboat and pretend we liked it. He was going to spend the rest of his life in a houseboat. It's all the same. Whatever he takes up, he gets tired of it and starts on something fresh. Such a good fellow too, remarked the otter reflectively, but no stability, especially in a boat. From where they sat, they could get a glimpse of the main stream across the island that separated them. And just then, a wager boat flashed into view. The rower, a short stout figure, splashing badly and rolling a good deal, but working his hardest. The rat stood up and hailed him. But Toad, for it was he, shook his head and settled sternly to his work. He'll be out that boat in a minute if he rolls like that, said the rat, sitting down again. Of course he will, chuckled. The Otter. If you continue reading uh, Wind in the Willows, you'll find uh, Mr. Toad discovers the combustion engine. He uh, gets overtaken uh, by a motor car um, and in the accident, all he can say is poop, poop, because he suddenly gets this uh, vision uh, uh, for driving a, a car. And so he braces the car at the uh, full, at the exclusion of everything else and uh, it's actually out of his obsessions with motor cars that all chaos erupts and uh, uh, it's the sort of main drive of the story is, is the uh, fixes that Toad gets into.
And I wonder as I read that um, whether you've ever known a Mr. Toad in your life. This is the sort of person that is all guns blazing, passionate about one thing one day. And uh, they just uh, are utterly uh, uh, immersed in it. But a week or a day passes and they become obsessive about something completely different. Just going to turn my mobile off. In this parable of the sower, Jesus explains that folk like this will be drawn to the gospel along with everyone else. You know, the good news of Jesus goes out and every type of person uh, uh, will respond and uh, enjoy God's grace. Um, but these uh, Mr. Toad types, they start by zealously confessing them as Lord. You know, they become utterly immersed. They attend every meeting. They share the good news everywhere they go. Um, and they seem to be on fire for Jesus like no other. But their Mr. Toad natures kick in. Um, and either they go back to old ways of living uh, and uh, um, sort of uh, muck around with stuff that they shouldn't be doing, or some other new novelty comes along and they embrace that and Christianity and Jesus is forsaken. And uh, in Elam Bubush, over the uh, last sort of 15 years, um, we've certainly mourned the rise and fall of such characters in our fellowship over the years. You know, they, they come all guns blazing, excited, loving Jesus, and then suddenly that fades away and the, the cares of life or uh, another new thing comes along and, and uh, moves them on. And because such flaky people come and go, we can't push them to the front lines. They can't be our main ambassadors uh, for the faith. You know, they, they can't be uh, uh, the, the sort of the face of our faith in this place. And we can't give them responsibility. You know, uh, scripture talks about uh, not giving new believers responsibility because of people like this. Now, when Dr. Luke was composing his book of Acts of the Apostles, um, these realities um, seem to have been in his mind. Um, and he wants to uh, give us a favourable impression of Christianity. He writes with the idea of inspiring faith and, and uh, uh, he does so in choosing uh, the episodes that are included carefully. In today's culture, we uh, love it particularly, it seems, when celebrities or scientists become uh, Christians. You know, people that are famous that we can go see, we're not a fringe thing, we're sort of famous and out there, or scientists and go, you see, we're, we're reasonable and, and logical and, and there's uh, um, a, a good uh, uh, reason to love Jesus. In the first century, I think, um, and you can uh, see how you think, um, other categories of people uh, were championed, particular types that would speak to the culture who became uh, Christians. And uh, I think uh, particularly anti-Mr. Toad types were celebrated when they came to faith. Now, I'm going to read um, something that was written over 100 years before Jesus was born. But uh, what it does is it gives a flavour of the culture and of the values 
um, over a century before Jesus was born, there was this Greek author named uh, Polybius, um, and he uh, uh, wrote the sort of history of the uh, uh, Roman uh, Republic at the time, and made observations. Uh, and uh, he wrote something quite interesting about army commanders, and he says this. Each division should have two commanding officers. This is only reasonable for it being impossible to know what a commander may be doing or what may happen to him. Um, it's sort of reason that uh, sort of when Boris Johnson uh, had to step down through uh, the, the virus, you know, there was a deputy prime minister uh, able to uh, step in. And, and that same thinking is uh, uh, in the Roman army, it seems. Um, and the necessities of war admit no parleying. They are anxious that the division may never be without a leader and commander. And they wish the centurions not to be so much bold and adventurous as men with a faculty of command, steady and of a profound rather than showy spirit, not prone to engage wantonly or to be unnecessarily forward in giving battle, but such as in the face of superior numbers and overwhelming pressure will die in defence of their post. And Polybus gives us the picture of what a, a Roman army commander looks like. You know, he's not sort of headstrong, uh, but he is mature, he's thoughtful, he's level-headed, um, he's pragmatic, he's aware of his resources and how to deploy them and the likelihood it, of success. And so this is what uh, a Roman centurion uh, uh, looked like. And um, this uh, idea, uh, this um, example of what a Roman centurion looked like was one of the reasons why the Roman army was so successful. You know, at Jesus' time, uh, um, it was near the peak of the Roman uh, um, occupation of the land around the Mediterranean and, and part of this vast uh, uh, land that they um, had conquered was partly due to the success of the army and the discipline and attributes uh, that they appreciated and valued and promoted uh, in their uh, um, officers. And I want us to keep this in mind, the sort of Mr. Toad mentality, the uh, attributes of the centurion that Polybus uh, uh, takes us. Um, and so if you've got a Bible, um, I'm very much just welcome. Don't be uh, lazy and just let me read it out. Uh, come and read along with me in Acts chapter 10. Hopefully uh, you're already poised at the book of Acts because we're going through uh, the book as a church. Um, and uh, it says this in Acts chapter uh, 10 verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day about three in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. 
So last week, um, we had a look at Acts again, and we studied this uh, moment where the church leaders had failed. You know, the uh, widows of uh, a sort of Hellenistic background, of Greek-speaking background, they were being neglected in favour of the, uh, the, the, um, the Hebrew or Aramaic speakers. Um, and that was solved not by uh, the sort of Jewish disciples having more power, but them giving the power away to these Greek-speaking Jews. And we suddenly find the church uh, made broader, included more people, and more people were elevated to points of um, authority and influence. And today, this reading that we've just gone through is another important, and another important part of Luke's purpose in showing how the church blossomed from being a, a very much a inward-looking Jewish sect to something uh, that blossomed and grew uh, and expanded. Um, and so today we uh, look at this uh, uh, another seismic shift in how Christians understood themselves and the church, how they understood people's uh, uh, being part of Jesus's body. I really do like it that um, independently of the apostles' uh, um, activities, we find this non-Jew in the port of Caesarea. Now, Caesarea uh, was an important place. It, it had been like a, um, a, a small uh, sort of port. Um, and then Herod the Great had come in and, and built sort of uh, massive amphitheatres and harbour. And he had made it a really prominent place. And then the Romans... Uh, uh, decided to seat their government there. So it was a, a place of uh, uh, administrative and, and legal and uh, military uh, significance. Um, and, uh, and in that place, we find this non-Jew, this Gentile. Um, and uh, we're told that he is a centurion. And this means um, that he was um, a leader of uh, around 100 uh, soldiers in the Roman Empire's army. This army that had achieved so much success across the Mediterranean, this guy uh, uh, was one of uh, the people that made up its backbone. And uh, in him, we would expect to find the attributes that Polybus told us about. You know, he would, he would be calm and level-headed. He would not be quick to go into war. He would not be overly adventurous. He would be someone that is level-headed and clear thinking. And, and, and so this is the type of person that Luke now puts on our radar. Uh, he's not a flighty religious crackpot, you know, the, the, the type that sort of follows whatever new fad is out there. Uh, he was certainly not the type that was prone to ecstatic trances. You know, if you're going to put someone in charge of your army, you are not going to give it to someone um, that sort of chases his own tail and, uh, and uh, uh, sort of uh, makes off-the-cuff decisions at every moment. This was a, a belt and braces army officer and he was trained uh, and experienced in thinking carefully through uh, uh, moments that confront him um, and he would uh, sort of count the cost of every word and commitment. And so we find this very solid guy 
uh, experiencing uh, this angel. And it's really easy when you think of these attributes to see why Luke would include him in the camp. Here is someone that makes Christianity uh, appear credible. Um, now, Cornelius hasn't been circumcised. He's kind of like a, a friend of Judaism. He's a he's a, a, a believer. He obviously has these religious values. He prays to God um, and uh, he gives to the poor uh, and he has a, a faith that the Old Testament would recognize as legitimate. But he hadn't sort of fully embraced Judaism. He hadn't been circumcised, um, which many of us guys can sort of understand. Uh, uh, why he was perhaps hesitant about taking that uh, last step. And we are told um, that his efforts of prayer, his efforts of giving to the poor, rose to God like the uh, pleasing aroma from a temple sacrifice. And the, the language that Luke uses is, is very reminiscent of something we'd find in the Old Testament. And uh, um, so these efforts rise to God. Um, and uh, um, God, in response, sends a messenger. And it's this angel, this spiritual being that has the, uh, uh, the appearance and form of a man. And the, the angel appears and uh, the centurion is, is suitably fearful. That happens every time that uh, someone that's been in the presence of God comes uh, uh, to a human and that they're a little bit overwhelmed uh, by it all and, and intimidated. And... Uh, the angel says you need to send for a guy that is um, over in Joppa. Um, it's the sort of next large coastal to uh, town. And they saying, go there and uh, uh, send for this guy, Simon Peter. Um, in this moment, we are uh, treated uh, to the inside story of God uh, preparing hearts and minds in advance. Um, we are given this insight into God working without the apostles having done a thing yet so often when we look at our friends and family we can uh feel the weight of failing to convince them we look around them and and they don't love jesus and and they think um that we are um ignorant or we are stupid um, or we are foolish for following this sort of ancient uh, faith and we can feel why haven't I convinced them why hasn't my behavior caused them to love Jesus why haven't my uh, reasonings caused them to go on the alpha course to come to a church meeting um, and, and, and we can feel disappointed um, but this moment in Cornelius's life should give us uh, relief from that you see uh, in this moment, Simon Peter has not yet said a word, but God is preparing Cornelius's heart to hear the gospel. And the truth is that every single person that takes the gospel out is dependent on God moving before them and after them. You know, we can bring uh, words and even persuasive words about our faith, but it is God who moves the person's heart that softens it up, that brings the Holy Spirit to cause them uh, to love Jesus. We can't convince someone of becoming a Christian. Only God can do that. Um, and so Cornelius' experience should be um, a relief from any feeling of, uh, of guilt um, that 
God is in charge. The gospel isn't ours to uh, succeed in or hinder. We simply work alongside what God is already doing. He is already plotting and scheming and sending out his Holy uh, Spirit. Um, and we should find comfort and we should find freedom in this. So having given this account of Cornelius's visitation, Luke uh, wants to bring us back to the uh, kind of the, uh, the figure of the Apostle Peter. He's the one that kind of validates these moments as uh, authentic of God. And if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 9. It says this. About noon the following day, as they're on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet can, uh, saw something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice called to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. I love the fact that we're given like this real time uh, data. The centurion sends out his uh, men and uh, uh, they go to this uh, port of Joppa and as they approach Peter's house he goes up on the roof to pray and he's hungry as well and we're, we're, we're treated this very real Peter you know he his vision actually plays on the fact that um, he's feeling uh, um, a little starved and um, as Centurion's men approach uh, Peter Peter is given the necessary information that he will need for the next few minutes. The Gentile, uh, uh, Gentile centurion, he gets a physical messenger. He gets this angel and Peter, he gets this waking vision by the spirit. It's, it's not so confrontational. It is um, sort of a lower key. And, but the thing is, Peter's already well acquainted with the spirit. He has heard the spirit again and again in different things. The third person of the Trinity is a friend and counsellor to him. Um, and um, he knows when God is trying to uh, show him something significant. You know, uh, uh, the spirit doesn't need all the bells and whistles of angels. He can just come directly to him and show him something that he will receive. There's no Michael or Gabriel uh, uh, that the spirit's got on hand to help him out. So often we want God's long-term strategy, don't we? So often we want to know how it pans out. We want to know why what's happening today um, affects the future. Why, Lord, are we stuck indoors, unable to do anything? What's the uh, what's the plan with this? How on earth is something good going to come out of this? And we'd love it to be in 4K, you know, really uh, uh, bright and clear and easy to understand. And then we can feel assured. But God doesn't seem to work like that, especially with people that love him, especially those that are intimate with him. He seems to love to operate in, in, a, in a downbeat sense, in a, in a need to know basis. 
Um, it seems to draw us in uh, by causing us to be reliant on our faith in him rather than something that he has given us. And uh, I find that really intriguing and reassuring as a, as a, as a believer that has loved Jesus for a long time. And, and I wonder where are my uh, sort of angelic visions. And we find Peter here uh, uh, getting this sort of uh, uh, waking uh, picture rather than anything else. And it's a picture that he could just sort of dismiss as a feature of his rumbling stomach. Um, so often we get something that sort of ties in with uh, something we've been thinking. And uh, Peter gets here and he could have dismissed it, but Peter knew he knows the Holy Spirit and he knows what his God is up to. And so Peter three times is invited um, to tuck into this surf and turf uh, um, sort of platter. And uh, he's invited to eat animals that are considered clean and unclean. And uh, if this is a little confusing to our 21st century minds, um, it's worth remembering that at Mount Sinai, when God was giving uh, the law, um, it was understood that only animals that chewed the card and had cloven hooves, they're the ones to eat and the rest were to be considered unclean. They were, the rest were to be pushed to the side. The rest would not be welcomed at the dinner table. Um, and this... Uh, um, this sort of um, observance was still going on in the first century. You know, Jews would eat the uh, um, food considered to be clean um, and dismiss and, and shun those food um, that wasn't regarded as clean. And that is one of the reasons why um, the Gentiles uh, were often pushed to one side because they involved themselves in things that the Jews regarded um, as unclean, as, as something that God had asked them not to get involved with. And, and it's one of the reasons why sort of Jesus uh, is sort of contaminated by the Gentiles in the view of the Pharisees and Sadducees and um, uh, uh, sort of uh, leaders of the temple. Um, having understood this, we must also remember in Mark 7 that Jesus actually then, as God incarnate, says... It's okay to eat all food. That suddenly this unclean, clean distinction is uh, um, sort of evaporated in the eyes of God. But it seems the disciples hadn't honoured this. They hadn't uh, got to grips with it. They had still seen it as an important uh, uh, division between the, those that love God and those that didn't. And, and those of us that are slow on the uptake can feel uh, a little bit of reassurance from these disciples who were so slow to take up um, this freedom that Jesus had given them. And so as Cornelius's men sort of raised their hand to knock at Simon the Tanner's door, as they raised their voices to call out uh, the Apostle Peter's name, um, the Apostle Peter having seen this vision starts to get an idea of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing that the boundaries that he thought were still in place were actually uh, disbanding before his very eyes as they uh, call on him the spirit assures him in like this second moment of a, a vision that these men that have been unasked for and that are calling his name that could be part of some nefarious scheme or of some sort of persecution they're in God's plan too and Peter gets this uh, uh, great sense of uh, security and affirmation that uh, what's happening next is in 
uh, God's plan. And um, God calls Peter to go with these men to Caesarea to meet this centurion. And, and uh, Peter could have easily dismissed the dream as sort of a feature of his hunger. He could have sort of relied on the Old Testament, said, you know, I'm not going with these Gentiles. Um, instead, instead, Peter hears the spirit and he follows him when much of his learning counts against it. So do you want to know what happens when a sceptical Jewish evangelist meets a bemused Gentile soldier? Well, we're going to read um, from near the end of Peter's resulting sermon to the centurion. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 39, and it says this. Um, Peter speaking. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, these words, the Holy Spirit, came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on these Gentiles, these uncircumcised uh, people. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And that's reminiscent of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost for the first time. And then Peter says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptised with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is so inspiring. This is uh, so self-explanatory. This bit of scripture, we could just leave it there and uh, sort of finish there. Um, but I wanted to just to draw out a couple of points that are obviously uh, important to Luke. Um, and I think um, we should take on board too. Um, first, we need to see um, that before the Holy Spirit came, Peter preached. Peter specifically gave the gospel. He gave the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. He talked about how he was sent, how he was um, anointed, how he died on the cross, how trusting in him brings salvation from our sins. Uh, and uh, there is this clear description of what it means to become uh, a Christian and so before the Holy Spirit takes over before the whiz and the bang of the spiritual encounter the life death and resurrection of the Nazarene is lifted up is elevated in the centurion's mind that this is the most important thing to be aware of it was foretold in the ancient scriptures these ancient scriptures that it looks like the centurion honored this is who it is all about 
all the Old Testament is about Jesus and this is him who you have to believe in and trust in. And this is the sort of epicentre of what Peter has to say. And it should remind us that, uh, that Jesus is the middle of everything and that we are not to just seek the feelings and signs and the whiz bang and the pop of the Holy Spirit without being embedded in that story of salvation, without trusting in Jesus, without understanding that we are uh, saved by grace through faith, that uh, we are undeserving recipients of the most wonderful gift of God. Um, and that sort of that gratitude and that grace and that freedom needs to be in our hearts in preparation for uh, the spirit doing marvelous and great and supernatural things. And so as Peter brings his sermon into land and uh, if you've ever been to a sort of evangelistic uh, uh, outreach, you'll know this is the point where the uh, speaker sort of turns to the musicians and the pianist comes and plays sort of gentle music and uh, there is this uh, invitation, you know, if if what I've said has rung true, then lift your hand and acknowledge that you want to be a Christian and you follow through the prayer. And you can see Peter gearing up for this moment where he's going to uh, take some Christian scouts. He's going to see some people uh, trust in Jesus. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit just takes over. And this doesn't seem to be much of that Holy Spirit dove, you know, sort of gently fluttering down. But it more seems to be that Holy Spirit as a forest fire who just takes what Peter said and just ran it home and just takes over that Gentile congregation so all the Jewish believers are going oh what's going on we hadn't thought that it was um, appropriate for them to make no mistake that the um, good news of Jesus had been spoken and then the spirit who is the sign and the seal of God's graciousness he ensures that that is baked into these people, that they really realise that is all about Jesus. And then these great manifestations which cause all the Jewish believers to uh, uh, look astounded. And immediately these outsiders, these ignorant Gentile, these unclean men uh, who weren't part of God's chosen people, they are filled with the Spirit. They are... Um, have this encounter with God. God comes and lives within them. Suddenly their lives become the holy of holies and to a Jew this would have been sacrilege but to these guys, to these uh, Jewish Christians they're like oh they get it too and there's a moment of beauty, a moment of inclusion, a moment of equality and they erupt in tongues in these unlearned languages, these strange movements of the mouth that uh, give out noises that sound like words and yet are not recognised by anyone present. And they are obviously praising God and rejoicing in him and telling of his deeds. And um, Jesus' promise of a counsellor and friend is obviously not for the spiritual elite. It's not for the morally pure. It's not for those who identify as religious. But it's for all the people. Just as the prophet Joel said many years previously. What constituted the community of believers was suddenly blown wide open. First, it was the Jewish uh, 
um, Greek um, Aramaic speakers that were included. Then it was the uh, uh, Hellenistic uh, Jews that spoke Greek. And now suddenly all Gentiles, every other uh, um, person on the face of the earth was potentially given access to the community of believers. And I love Peter's response. Rather than process it out loud, he just seems to smile and says, you know what, we need to go down to Southwater Lake. We need to dunk these guys down because God has obviously visited them. Jesus has obviously saved them. They are part of the Christian church. They are part of the body of Christ. And we need to dunk them in to show them that way forward. Friends, as Father, Spirit and Son, work together in this moment to frustrate prejudice and uh, welcome all uh, that would believe in Jesus. Um, We too need to have that inclusive uh, perspective. We too need to have this optimism that the gospel that we treasure, that has changed our lives, that has changed the lives of each of the guys um, that are part of our church, that the invitation doesn't go out just to people like us doesn't go to just to good people or bad people but it it goes out to all that are around us there is no cultural ethnic uh, or social barrier that we can cross with the gospel that Jesus won't go with us that the spirit won't seal with his presence and this should cause us to be bold and optimistic and dare I say adventurous the, the next thing I want to draw from this moment in Luke is that uh, God doesn't play favourites. He didn't choose the Israelites because they were the best. He didn't give them the land in Cana because they were the best. He chose them out of his sovereign grace. And that pattern continues in this uh, population of the church. He chooses people sovereignly because of his own grace to be engrafted um, into the body of believers and again and again he chooses some people for this and some people for that and we shouldn't read into it that that person has more of God's favour than that person because of what they get up to and so if we feel um, favoured by God you know if we feel um, that God has blessed us with this that and the other We are not to see ourselves as some sort of remarkable specimen of humanity that has somehow earned uh, uh, God's favour. That we have stepped up to the plate and uh, uh, God's lavishment of his love is something that we have somehow contributed to. We are just recipients of grace. And similarly, if we feel neglected, you know, if we see everyone else seemingly favoured by God, but he seems to have missed us out. We need to listen to the fact that God does not have favourites and that he uh, loves us nevertheless. It may be less conspicuous than we would like. It may be less helpful than we think we should. But the word is that God treasures us, that Jesus died as much for us as the person that seems to have uh, health Uh, and wealth and uh, power so this is Luke's account of the centurion and um, I want us to hear 
amidst all these details, amongst this transformation of the church, amongst this transformation of what it was understood to be um, a Christian, that Luke is inviting us not just to know about the Holy Spirit and to know what his movement looks like, but to enjoy him personally. That is the whole point of this series through Acts. That is the whole point of our Bible study uh, that we're travelling through in 49 days. That is the whole point of looking forward to Pentecost at the end of May. It is the Holy Spirit is someone that suddenly becomes um, our best friend, our counsellor, the one that we lean on in times of good and evil. And um, so I want to end with uh, another reading from The Wind in the Willows. There's this great moment where Mole is suddenly transformed from being this landlubber to someone that starts to embrace uh, the river uh, and uh, someone that sees the adventure uh, that Rat has called him to. Um, and uh, it, we find this Mole is never the same again. Um, as this scary water that he'd always shunned suddenly becomes this inviting opportunity. Um, And Mole wholeheartedly embraces this river and all the adventure and purpose and life that it offers. And I think as we read about Mole's transformation, it would be good to put our place, um, to, uh, uh, to put ourselves in Mole's shoes and not think of the river just as a movement of water, but as the river of God, the, the Holy Spirit. And so as I read about Mo, I wonder if you uh, can put yourself in that position where the Holy Spirit becomes this intriguing uh, 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 opportunity, um, this person who uh, that you dream of, this person that you invite into your lives, this person uh, uh, that... Uh, you enjoy his company at every moment. Um, so I'm going to end with this uh, reading from uh, Wind in the Willows. When they got home, the rat made a bright fire in the parlour and he planted the mole in an armchair in front of it. Having fetched down a dressing gown and slippers for him, he told him river stories till supper time. Um, And I can't help but think that Luke tells us river stories in Acts. Very thrilling stories they were too, to an earth-dwelling animal like Mole. Stories about weirs and sudden floods and leaping pike and steamers that flung hard bottles. At least bottles were certainly flung and from steamers. So just under, um, so presumably by them. And about herons and how particular they were about whom they spoke to. And about adventures down drains and night fishings with otter. Or excursions far afield with badger. Supper was a most cheerful meal. But very shortly afterwards, a terribly sleepy mole had to be escorted upstairs by his considerate host to the very best bedroom. Where he soon laid his head on the pillow in great peace and contentment. Knowing that his newfound friend the river was lapping the sill of his window. This day was only the first of many similar ones for the emancipated role, this freed mole, this liberated mole, each of them longer and fuller of interest as the ripening summer moved forward. He learnt to swim and to row and he entered into the joy of running water and with his ear to the reeds 
stems he caught at intervals something of what the wind went whispering so constantly among them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the most treasure good news this world has ever seen and that you endorse it with your Holy Spirit. Lord God, I pray for our congregation specifically that we would love your Holy Spirit, that we would be good at telling river stories to each other, that we would be good at exciting an appetite in each one uh, another uh, for your spirit. God, we thank you for this story of the centurion. We thank you for this level-headed man who experienced God and Pete just had to baptise. And uh, Lord God, I pray um, that we would just take Luke's works and allow them to fuel a desire to enjoy the Holy Spirit's company um, and the inclusion he brings. Heavenly Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.